our God has done great things for us, has he not? Amen. Amen. What you believe will affect what you do. What you believe actually directs and influences and guides your actions. In other words, your beliefs always lead to actions. The two are deeply connected. One of the greatest preachers in the 19th century, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, or C.H. Spurgeon, claimed that 98% of the people that he met in general, including English prisons, he would say this, that a vast majority of them say that they believe in God. They believe in the Bible. They actually believe that the Bible is true. But the vast majority of them have never made a personal, life-changing commitment to Jesus Christ. For them to believe doesn't lead to action. For them to believe was not an active verb. In other words, no commitment led to no action. But belief and behavior are deeply connected. What you believe always plays out in your actions. So one of the questions that is before us this morning is, what do you actually believe about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? If you hold to a biblical paradigm, it actually will cause you to live a certain way, to act a certain way, to talk a certain way, to live before your family and your neighbors a certain way. Because the fruit, which is your action, is always deeply connected to the root, what you actually believe. So your actions will reveal the authenticity of your so-called profession. So the main point I want to get across this morning is this. Moral living without the gospel is self-made religion. Moral living without the gospel is self-made religion. And if we're to be honest with ourselves, it's easy to claim that Jesus is our Lord and our Savior on a Sunday. But when we leave these doors right after today's service, and live in the world, and work in the world, and get beaten up by the world, and then we come back here next Sunday, what are you holding on to throughout the week? So is your paradigm biblical? In this text of Colossians chapter 3, if you understand the book of maps, I know that's extra biblical, but I love studying geography, and in maps... Colossae is really modern-day Western Turkey. Western Turkey, the year is A.D. 53, 54, 55. It's the first century of the church, and many of the Christians there, for religious sake, have taken on a different type of religion. They are trying to satisfy spiritual beings or cosmic powers or even angels because they have been taught that in order to satisfy these spiritual beings, these cosmic powers, that they need to do certain things, that they need to live a certain way. So they need to keep festivals. In other words, they need to eat certain foods or abstain from certain foods or drink certain drinks or abstain from drinking certain drinks. They need to hold to Old Testament ceremonial laws. These people felt vulnerable to these spiritual forces or these cosmic powers. So they would placate or satisfy these spiritual beings by all of this religiosity. 
And so a lot of them also believe that these spiritual beings were so powerful that they would control and direct human history, that they controlled the, the human calendar, that they controlled the universe and the sky and the stars. They were so powerful, these spiritual beings, that they were worthy of worship. And so that is the problem before these Colossian Christians. And the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is challenging that religion. He's directly taking it on, head on. And so the Apostle Paul is saying that to hold to this new religion, which is really a dead religion, will actually cause you to be under bondage. It causes you to be under slavery again. Why? Because in order for you to be right, so to speak, before these spiritual forces, you have to do something. But what happens if you can't do enough to satisfy them? That's the problem. But ultimately, they don't control your destiny. God does. And so to hold to this new religion is bondage and slavery, but yet Jesus Christ has freed you. He's trying to remind the Christians, you are free in Christ. Christ has redeemed you, not these spiritual forces and cosmic powers. You are accepted by God, not by holding to festivals and Old Testament ceremonial laws. You are accepted by God through Christ. And so that's the answer. To satisfy these spiritual beings is really harmful to any Christian, especially a New Testament church. To hold to anything that is extra-biblical, meaning outside of the Bible, and bring it into the Bible or into the church and say, hey, this is what it takes to be right is harmful to a Christian church, a gospel-centered church. So moral living without the gospel is self-made religion, and it's worthless and it's harmful to you and to me and to the church, the New Testament church, and to these Colossian Christians. It's a serious problem. So what's the answer to the problem? The gospel. And we see that in verses 1 through 4. And I want to spend a few minutes on this because I don't want to make any assumptions that we're all on the same page. It would be foolish for me to think that every single one of us in this room 100% knows the Lord. I would say no. I meet people every single Sunday. Those who know the Lord and those who don't. And those who don't know the Lord, we want you to know the Lord. So I want to spend some, a few extra minutes on these first four verses of Colossians chapter 3. Read with me. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The Apostle Paul, when he uses the word you, that's the second person plural. He's talking to all of them. You all have been raised for a reason. And we just sang a song. Did we not just a couple songs ago where Pastor Ed, it's amazing how the Lord puts the song and the sermon together, that we are raised to newness of life in Christ 
See, we don't understand the importance of that. We think that's no big deal, but because of this. See, if Jesus is dead, we've got a problem if he remains in the grave. But if Jesus is alive and he's raised from the dead, then guess what? You're no longer judged because you're with Christ. And so he says to them, you all have been raised. We're talking about the resurrection. That we have been raised for a reason. To live together. To honor Christ and to give glory to Christ. But in order to be raised from the dead, you have to be dead first, right? That makes sense. That's logical, Pastor Rollo. Isaiah 53, verse 11, talks about the suffering servant or the righteous one who's going to die. Verse 11 says this, of Isaiah 53, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He doesn't say all. He says many will be accounted as righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Christ died, not for all. Christ died for his people. Christ died for his elect. Christ died for his chosen ones. Have you ever thought about this? Out of all the people in the Old Testament, God chose the Israelites. He didn't choose other nations outside of them. And so we see more of that here, that Christ died. He bore their iniquities. If you're a Christian, Christ died for you. If you don't believe in Jesus, as it stands today, Christ did not die for you. Why? Because everybody wants to quote John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes, you see that there's a responsibility that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have what? Everlasting or eternal life. And every Christian, and every non-Christian in the world wants to quote that famous verse, but they don't want to go to verse 18. The one who does not believe right now, present tense, is condemned already. you got to connect verse 18 to verse 16, God's people. If you don't believe right now, you are condemned already. And that's the great thing about being, being a pastor or a Christian. I don't have to condemn you. Your unbelief condemns you already. Your personal unbelief does that. So Jesus Christ died, but he was also raised. In Matthew 28, the angel says to these women, right? The angel says, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. Past tense. He died. He died for his people. And yet, verse 6, he is not here, for he has risen. He's talking about the resurrection. See, if you're tied to Christ by belief and trust in him, and he's dead, then what hope do we have? Because 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17 says this, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, your Christian faith, your profession of faith is futile, it's useless, it's worthless. And you're still in your sins. In other words, we will die in our sins and we'll be judged. We don't have the hope of forgiveness. We don't have the hope of heaven. We're not declared legally righteous before God. 
That's if he's dead. But he's not dead. He is alive. So the resurrection for us as Bible-believing Christians matters. And so in Christ's resurrection, the ungodly are now justified by faith in Christ. When we use that word justified, that's legal language within a courtroom setting. That the judge has the right and the authority to declare this person guilty, heading for prison or hell, or declared righteous and going to heaven. And that only happens by faith in Christ. And so those who are in Christ, those who put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ, God has declared you righteous. God has declared you forgiven. Praise God. Because all the evidence points to our condemnation unless Christ steps in. And Christ steps in in our behalf. So we are declared righteous or we're declared justified, not because we have a dead Savior. It's because we have a risen, living Savior. And see, a living Savior is the proof that God has accepted the work of Christ on our behalf. If God does not accept Christ's work on our behalf, Christ is dead and remains dead. And we are still in our sins. But because Christ is alive, God has accepted that work, that perfect work that only Christ can do for you and for me. And the reason he's alive is God has accepted that work on our behalf. Death could not hold him. Sin could not hold him. The devil could not hold him. We have a strong and mighty Savior. And so Christ died on behalf of his people. And so we're identified with Christ in his life and in his death by faith in him. We look at verse 3. Read with me. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So we see here that the Apostle Paul tells these Christians in Colossae that you are identified with Christ. That we all have died to our old sinful lives. And our lives are hidden with Christ in God. That word hidden means that our lives are protected. Our lives are safe. In other words, our souls are in the hands of the one, the only one who can save us and redeem us and bring, him unto, bring us unto himself. So he's saying that your life, dear Christian, at Colossae, is protected in Christ, or with Christ in God. John 10 talks about this, verse 27. Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Do you understand that? Jesus is not talking to everybody. He's not talking to the goats. He's not talking to the giraffes or the hippopotamuses. He's talking to sheep. He says, My sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. Who's in control? Christ is. He's sovereign. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's a promise. Praise God. No one is going to snatch God's people out of Jesus' hand. And if that promise isn't good enough, he says this, My Father 
who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands. There's a double promise. No one, no one of God's elect will be snatched out of Jesus' hand or God's hand. There's a double promise there. And so the lives of God's people are protected. And these Colossian Christians, here's the idea. If the Colossians are fearful of these cosmic powers, these spiritual forces, and they're trying to placate them or satisfy them by their drink or no drink or food or no food or the worship of angels, what the Apostle Paul is saying, God is the creator. God is sovereign. God has saved you. Not these angels. And not these man-made laws and religion. The Apostle Paul is telling them, don't be afraid of them. God has sent his son for you. And so these Colossian Christians have died, but if Christ is dead, then we have a problem. But if Christ is raised, which he is, we can praise God. Then all of God's people will be raised. They will not stay in the grave. They will not be judged by God for their sin because Christ has stood in their place and died for them. And so God's people are united to Christ in Christ's life and in Christ's death and in Christ's resurrection. This is beautiful if you understand what the Apostle Paul is doing. He's saying, don't be afraid of them. God loves you. You're not saved by man-made religion. You're saved by Christ, by faith in Christ. Because a dead Savior can't help us, but a living one is priceless. And our hope is in the living Christ. No festival, no food, no drink, no tradition, no spiritual beings, no rules and regulations, no angels, no worship of angels. And certainly not mankind, not humanity. None of that can forgive us. None of those people can forgive us, but only God and Christ. And God has accepted us. God has accepted you, dear Colossians, in Christ. And so we are accepted by God through faith in Christ. And we should be very grateful for that. See, there's some of us in here right now. This happens every single Sunday that you profess faith in Christ, but you have no assurance. You're just doing this. You're crossing your fingers and you're hoping by the skin of your teeth that when you die, some sort of deathbed profession will get you so-called to the pearly gates. And that it's a 50-50 chance. I, I, I don't know, maybe. Here's the promise. It's the one who believes in Jesus. The problem, the problem in America is this, is that we can believe in something and not trust it, right? I believe in X, but I don't put any real belief in X, so therefore I don't trust. So we say with our mouth we believe, but with our actions we don't trust. But in the Bible, to believe is actually to put faith or belief and trust together. In the Bible, those two are never disconnected. In America, we disconnect it all the time. But in the Bible, those two are together and always together. So in verse 1, the Apostle Paul gives a 
positive command. He says, seek, desire, want a certain thing. The things that are in heaven. But he also says, there's somebody special in heaven. Where Christ is. Christ is seated at the right hand of God. See, heaven is not heaven if Jesus is not there. And most professing Christians in the world want heaven, but they don't want Jesus of heaven. But he says, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. In other words, to be seated means that this person's work, Jesus' work, is complete and final and perfect. See, in the Old Testament, the Old Testament priests, they were always standing up. Why? Because they were offering sacrifices daily. The Old Testament sacrificial system was a bloody, bloody, bloody religion. They were offering animals all the time, if not daily, weekly, monthly, and definitely yearly. And so when we think about the Old Testament sacrificial system, we should think to ourselves, how much blood is enough? How many animals have to be sacrificed to satisfy or assuage the wrath of God against sin? See, because blood is to cover or to atone for the sins of those who broke God's law. And so when you see animal after animal after animal being slaughtered and sacrificed and the blood being poured out, we should say to ourselves, how much blood is enough? According to Hebrews, the blood of Christ is sufficient in all that is needed. He is sacrificed once and for all. He is the perfect sacrifice. And so his work on the cross, in his earthly ministry, is complete. There's no reason to offer another sacrifice. There is no reason to reinstitute the Old Testament sacrifices as some believe that should happen. No, Christ is all and Christ is enough. And so that's why Christ is seated. His work is complete and final and perfect. But he's also in a very special position. He's at the right hand of God the Father. To be at the right hand as opposed to the left hand. The right hand is a special seat of honor and prestige and worth and authority. And so Jesus has high status. Jesus is special. He's seated. He's at the right hand of the Father. And so when we think about this, right, when Jesus was raised from the dead, we see Jesus no longer humiliated. But now he's in his state of exaltation. He is the risen, reigning, authoritative king. And he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And so we're talking about a position of exaltation. One scholar says it like this, The Father has given all authority to Jesus, the Son, to rule over the entire creation as the now exalted God-man. Jesus is not the man-God. No, he's the God-man who is no longer dead, but he is alive and well. And he rules and reigns with all authority. And he reigns now. And when Jesus comes back, we will see the full consummation of his authority. And so Jesus, when we think about this, what the Apostle Paul is doing, right? The Apostle Paul can 
easily, quickly skip the first four verses and say, positive command, do this. Negative command, do not do this. The Apostle Paul could do that. But the Apostle Paul is laboring in the first four verses that if you just jump to commands and not understand the foundation and the basis for these commands, then all you will be and all I will ever be is religious zealots. We will be Pharisees and Sadducees and legalists. Do this. Don't do this. Who wants that? And so we see what Paul is doing is that Jesus is raised from the dead. He's resurrected. He's also in a position of authority. He's ascended. He is the ruling, reigning king now. And when we look at Acts 2, verse 36, it says this, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain, this is not speculation, this is not theory, know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Lord is a, simply a title for Christ. He is the ruler who exercises his authority. And then when we look at the term Christ, that literally means the anointed one. See, in the Old Testament, all of God's people have been looking for the one. They've been searching for the one who re would redeem them. The Redeemer, the anointed one, the Old Testament Messiah is to be expected, and they're looking for him. When we think about this, dear Christian, does the resurrection compel you to live for Christ? Here's the answer. Yes, it must. Does the ascension of Christ, that he's seated at the right hand of the Father, does that motivate you to live for Christ? Answer, it must. So what the Apostle Paul is doing is he's saying, look at the resurrection, look at the ascension. All of these things that God has done in Christ is to benefit his people, the church. And the Lord, God has made this Jesus Lord and Christ. He is Lord and Christ. You know, what I've noticed many times in America is that People say this profession of faith that they believe in Jesus. Why? It's because they don't want to go to hell. They don't want to be judged by God. They want hell insurance, so to speak. They want Jesus as Savior. Right? I, I, I don't want to die in my sins, but at the same time, I don't want to go to hell forever. And so I'm going to profess Jesus as Savior. But the real question also that you have to add to that is Jesus, your Lord. See, we want Jesus as fire insurance, but we don't want Jesus as Lord and King. We don't want to bow the knees and bow the heart to Jesus as our Lord, as your Lord. And if that's you, I would call you to repent. Jesus is Lord and Savior. Jesus is Lord and Christ. If you have Jesus as Savior, you must have him as Lord. You cannot separate the two. When we look at verse 2, the Apostle Paul gives another positive command. He says, set your mind on things that are above, to let your mind dwell on these things, have your mind fixated on these things, keep thinking, keep paying attention to these things. But he also gives a negative command. 
He says, not on things that are on the earth. In context, don't focus your mind on man-made ways and man-made religion. Don't focus on earthly things. Focus on heavenly things, godly things, righteous things. Focus on your salvation that you've received from God through Christ and in Christ. Look at verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you all also will appear with him in glory. Do you see what's happening? The Apostle Paul talks about the resurrection. He talks about the ascension. And now he talks about the second coming of Christ, the return of Christ. See, the, the coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ, is central in how we live for Christ. Because, see, if you don't think that Jesus is coming back, then you're tempted to live any way you want. But G, uh, the Apostle Paul is saying, Christ is coming back. That should motivate you to live a certain way. It is central to our gospel ethic or gospel living. One scholar says it like this, the ultimate purpose of Christ's first coming was to accomplish salvation. At his second coming, sometime in the future, the God-man will return to earth in glorious triumph. Not to deal with sin. He already dealt with sin at the cross. Not to deal with sin, but to fully save all those who believe in him. This return will be personal. Christ himself, not his influence or his teaching or his spirit-mediated presence will come to earth. He goes on to say, he will return bodily just as he left this earth when he ascended to heaven. His return will be sudden, taking by surprise unbelievers who are not expecting his second coming. Christ will return triumphantly with glory and might. Christ is coming back. The text of Scripture in the New Testament, especially in Acts chapter 1 and many other places, Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. Does that motivate us anymore to live for us? Or live for him, I should say? And if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, your life is in Christ. Your life is no longer your own. You don't own and control your life anymore. You've been purchased by the blood of Christ. You belong to him. And when Christ returns, the Colossians will be revealed in glory with him. By application, that applies to all New Testament Christians. John 14, verse 2 says this, And the Lord is preparing a special place in heaven. We remember this text in John 14, verse 2. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Where I am you may be also. Christ is preparing heaven for his people. He will come back. He is coming back. And he's going to take his people home. The once humiliated, now resurrected and ascended Lord will appear a second time. That's a promise you could take all the way to the bank. Doesn't matter what other religions say. Doesn't matter what politics say. Doesn't matter what the atheists say. It doesn't matter. What matters is what does the word of God say? 
he will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And at that point, we will see the full consummation of Christ's kingdom in authority and power. This is known as glorification. Another way to say it is salvation in full. Salvation in full. So the biblical message has a resurrection component and an ascension component and the second coming of Christ component. And again, the reason that I'm belaboring this is that we're about to go into the command section, the, the positive negatives. And the last thing that I want you to be is a legalist and a religious zealot and doing things in your own energy, your own strength, and your own gifting, and your own pride. That's why I'm belaboring the point. Which now leads to verse 5. Read with me. Colossians 3, verse 5. Here's the command. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, skinthian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Before I go into this section, these are commands to the New Testament church. By extension, that applies to us. But let me ask you a serious question. How are you going to actually obey these commands apart from a gospel-centered church? How are you going to obey the commands that are in here now, now that the foundation has been built of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ if you're never part of a gospel-centered church? You're never involved in a gospel-centered church. You're always outside of the gospel-centered church. You want to live your life your own way. You want to run things by or have your own schedule. Like, how are you going to actually, in practice, obey these apart from a gospel-centered church? Food for thought. He says, put to death, meaning stop. Stop. Cease completely what is earthly. These sins and man-made religion. And there are 11 sins that the Apostle Paul quotes here. And the first four deal with sexual sin. And I want to ask this church family, which ones apply to you? Maybe one, maybe all of them. But we need to evaluate our own hearts before God. So the first sin, the first four are sexual. This first one says sexual immorality. That's where the word porneia comes from, where we get the English word porn or pornography. This is of any kind of sexual sin, including prostitution, including fornication, including heterosexual sin, including homosexual sin. Number two, impurity. This is moral impurity. 
This is sexual filthiness regarding sexual sins. Number three, passion, lust, lustful desires, strong physical attraction for someone who's not your spouse. Number four, evil desire. This is evil, harmful cravings or passions. Does any of those first four apply to you? Look at the next one. Covetousness. This is greed or avarice. Greediness. And then now we're dealing with this next little section of anger or abusive speech. Let's see which ones apply to us here. And the Apostle Paul is saying, if you're doing any of these things, you need to stop immediately. You need to cease doing this, for it's affecting the church. Anger. We see that in verse 8. Anger. He's saying, stop your anger. Stop your fury. The reason that we get angry most of the time is because we don't get what we think we deserve. Somebody is in the way of what we want. And because they're in the way, and they won't let us get our sinful desires, we get angry. Next one, wrath. This is intense anger, passionate anger. It could be outbursts. It could be rage. It's when we're driving down the road in Las Vegas during traffic, right? And 10 people cut in front of us. And we're shouting to the top of our lungs. And the other person who's looking through the window thinks we're singing to God. But we're cursing them up one side and down the other. How about malice? This is hate. A strong desire to hurt another person in different ways, to cause potential harm to them. We strongly dislike them, right? We don't like to use the word hate. It's such a strong word, Pastor Rolo. I just strongly dislike my brother in Christ. Think about that statement. Number nine, slander. That's blasphemy, and that's where we get the English word blasphemy. This is where we slander another person. This is where we talk in such a way that our end goal is to hurt the other person's reputation to others. And so we'll say a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a whole lot of this to hurt another person's reputation. Number 10, obscene talk. This is filthy talk, ungodly talk. This is vulgar talk, obscene talk. Do I really need to define this? We know when we're speaking in a vulgar, obscene way. And then number 11, lying. He's saying, do not lie. Don't tell falsehoods. Lying is sin, by the way. All of these are sins, by the way. And all of these sins deserve God's judgment. God is going to judge, because if you look at verse 6, the wrath of God is coming. The Apostle Paul is saying, the ones who commit these sins, God is coming. And God will judge them. Again, 
the reason why we don't think that sin is a big deal is we really don't understand who we've sinned against. You think you've sinned against your best friend and your buddy who's always going to forgive you because they love you no matter what. We are talking about the Creator God who is holy. He created you for a reason. He has every right to cast your sinful soul into hell for all of eternity. And that would be good and right for God to do that if he so deems it so. But God, in his kindness, motivated by love, has elected some. And he will save them. And he's given them Christ, his one and only son. So, lift your eyes to heaven. Lift your eyes to God. The wrath of God is coming. God will punish all those who have sinned against him because God is holy. Sin has an appointment, a divine appointment with God. If you look at verses 9 through 11, the Apostle Paul is using fashion language, if I could say it that way. Garment language. You, you have taken off something and you've put on something like a garment. He says, at conversion, you put off the old man. You've put off these old garments of unrighteousness, and you've put on new garments of righteousness. In other words, Colossians, you have gone from the Adam who plunged the humanity, the entirety of humanity, into sin, and now you've come to Christ by God's grace. You're in the second and better Adam. You're in Jesus Christ. And he's saying here in this verse, after the image of its creator. The image of its creator. This is the image of God language. The Imago Dei language. The Lord created man in his image. We see that in Genesis chapter 1. God created man in his own image. Have you noticed that that language, that the Bible never, use, never uses that language and applies this to trees or vegetation or plants. He doesn't apply it to animals. He doesn't apply it to spiritual beings and cosmic forces. That language, made in the image of God, only applies to human beings. So those who are image bearers, those who are human, bear the image of God. In other words, they are called, designed, and created to reflect the holiness of God, God's holy will and God's holy character to the entire world. That's what image bears mean. And so mankind's original vocation was to do that, to mirror God's holiness to the world. But because of sin, the image of God has been tarnished, not destroyed, but tarnished. But through the gospel, the image of God is being restored and we see it more and more and more, the image of God. When all of us walk in holiness, when our speech is holy and our actions are holy, we are imaging God and his character of holiness. And that happens within a special group called the church. And so the gospel is restoring that image. And so there's a living, or there is a as Christians, there is a living component to our gospel profession. If we believe in the gospel, it should cause us to live a certain way. 
Moral living does not bring cultures together. Let me say that again. Moral living does not bring cultures together. I'm sure that somebody in here can Google and find some tribe in the world that is moral. And these people come together under the term or banner of morality. But what's your definition of morality is the question. But moral living doesn't bring cultures together. Only the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ brings cultures together, brings communities together, brings societies together, brings different ethnicities together. I've said this once. I'll say it a million times. When I came to Christ, I lost my biological family. The bloodline of the Bernalis family I lost. But God gave me a new family called the family of God, and I thank God every day for that family. Yes, we're not perfect in this life. Yes, we rub elbows together. Yes, we say weird things. Yes, we're so socially awkward. Yes, we stink at times, and we can't be in each other. I get that. I understand that. But I knew what I was signing up for, so to speak. God changed my heart. God changed your heart. I got black brothers. I got Hispanic brothers. I got Asian brothers. I got white brothers. I got brothers from all over the world. I got sisters from all over the world. The language we speak is the gospel. The gospel breaks down racial barriers. The gospel breaks down all the dividing walls that this world throws at us. If you look across the room, we've got people from all sorts of different backgrounds, not only in America, but around the world. And I thank God for that. You are my family. We are family. We are in a real family. We are not in the Bernalis family, and I thank God for that. We're in the family of God who love Jesus. We're committed to his word. We're growing in grace. We're maturing in faith. And we're walking in holiness. We're walking in holiness. And so through the gospel, there's a cross-cultural unity. It's not politics. It's not man-made religion. It's not philosophies that come from the hottest pit of hell. It's the gospel that breaks down all barriers. And we thank God for that. That's why in verse 11, the Apostle Paul makes it very clear. There's not a Greek. There's not a Jew. There's not circumcised and uncircumcised. There's not barbarian or Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all in all. The Apostle Paul lists eight different types of people. And he's saying that the gospel breaks down all the dividing walls and brings his people together through the gospel of grace. A Greek is a Gentile, born outside of the Old Testament Jewish tradition. They're considered outsiders for many reasons. Part of it is because they're uncircumcised. A Jew is the opposite of a Greek or a Gentile. This is one who's born within the Old Testament Israel system, believes in Old Testament sacrifices and circumcised. A barbarian is a Gentile who's uncivilized, uncouth, doesn't know how to speak properly, these are people who are of low cultural level. Scythians, Scythians, 
These are the people who live north of the Black Sea. They're considered pagans and uncivilized. The Jewish historian Josephus labeled them as a little better than wild beasts. If you want to know where Skinty is, that's exactly where the Russia-Ukraine war is happening right now. Slaves, those are people who are legally owned by another, controlled by another, free. A free person is not always free. But Christ is all and in all. Again, the gospel breaks down all of those barriers. We should praise God for that. You know, in America, I see that our primary identity in America is our Americanism, is our nationalism, is our patriotism. Let me explain. As you know, I'm back in the military. So I come from a family where my father was one of 12 people, one of 12 siblings that successfully immigrated to America. One of 12. I'm first generation American, joined the military twice. I'm patriotic. I love America as the next red-blooded American. But my patriotism stops when it conflicts and confronts the Bible. I am a Christian first. We are Christians first. There's some of you who are more democratic than Christian. And there's some of you who are more Republican than Christian. I'm asking both of you to meet me in the middle. And quit making your primary identity politics and institutions and the things of this world. Your primary identity is Christ. Christ is in all and is all. So if you're not a Christian, everything that I'm saying this morning makes absolute, is absolute nonsense to you. You don't understand what I'm saying. You think I'm speaking in tongues right now because God has never changed your heart. You don't see the beauty of Christ, the worth of Christ, the majesty of Christ. All you see is your sin and your love for your sin. We want you to know Christ. Come to Christ. Turn away from your sin that God knows about and trust in his one and only son, the Savior, Jesus. His, the only hope you have is Christ. Look at verse 7. In these you two once walked when you were living in them. Sounds like Ephesians 2, right? You were once this and now you're this. The Apostle Paul is trying to get these Colossians to remember the great salvation that they received from God. That God has been gracious to them. God has given them Christ. They believed in Christ. In other words, you are dead to sin and you're now alive in Christ. Don't go back to living as a dead person in sin. Be reminded you're alive in Christ and live in that. Lean into that. You're no longer an Adam. You're in the better Adam, Jesus. You're no longer earthly. You are now heavenly because of Christ. You were once going to be judged, but you're now no longer judged because Christ was judged on your behalf. And so, be who you are. 
live as a Christian. But the, the problem is, is that Christians won't live a gospel-centered life because they have forgotten the gospel fundamentally many times. As soon as you walk out this building today, you're going to probably forget 80% of what I said this morning. But be reminded, don't, get, don't ever get tired of the gospel. Know the gospel, study the gospel, meditate on the gospel, memorize the gospel, evangelize with the gospel, the biblical gospel. Be reminded over and over and over again. Never get tired of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 12, we see now what we're supposed to do as well by putting on. Look at verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Again, here's a command, a positive command, a put on, meaning it's a benefit to Christ's church if they actually do what the Apostle Paul has called them to do to obey these instructions. And there's eight characteristics that they are to obey and apply in their lives within the church. They are to mirror compassionate hearts. This is a person who is so caring for another person that they're emotionally involved. They have emotional care for those who are hurting and suffering. These are the people who are compassionate. They have tender mercies. It comes from their heart, or in biblical language, it comes from their kidneys or their bowels or their intestines. That's just biblical language of saying it's deep within them. Their compassion for another person. Is that you? As I go through this list, is that you? If that's not you, then when is it going to be you? Kindness. To act kindly towards another person, to be ready, to be kind to others, to be gentle and warm-hearted. Is that you? Humility. This is a person without arrogance, a person who's not prideful, a person who's not always trying to be first, but always trying to put the other person first. They're humble. And if we accurately look at our sins, all of our sins, even one sin, what boasting do we have? What room for boasting do we have? Our one sin is enough to condemn us to hell for all of eternity. But yet, in God's kindness, he gave us Christ. We have no room to be prideful. We need to be humble. Meekness. This is the person who's mild, meek, gentle towards other, not simply in attitude, but also in behavior. Is that you? How about patience? One who's emotionally calm in the face of misfortune. The one who takes the long view in the face of human weakness. This is the person who doesn't complain, that is willing to be there for the long term. You know, I have a confession to make. I haven't always been patient. I haven't. Why? Because... Many people can say some pretty profound and uneducated things. I thought I was the most patient man until I got married. 
And then I realized I'm not as patient as I thought I was. I thought I was the most loving man until I got married. And then I realized I love myself more than I love the other person. You know, marriage and family has a sanctifying effect. Those of you who are single, get married. And you're like, Pastor Ola, I'm trying. (laughs) Quit trying. Ask the Lord to help you. But marriage and family has a sanctifying effect. And you know what? That's God's design, by the way. God knows the sin in your heart that needs to come to the surface and be scraped away. And marriage and family does that. But we need to be patient with one another. We need to bear with one another. We need to bear with one another. That's patient with a person who's going through great difficulty. And also, we need to forgive each other. That's what he's telling these Colossian Christians. Forgive one another. Forgive each other. Why? Why should you forgive one another and be gracious to one another? Here's the answer. Because God has forgiven you. You forgive one another because God has forgiven you. You know why we don't forgive immediately or why we don't forgive at all and we hold grudges? is because we have forgotten how much we have been forgiven by God in Christ. We stand in our pride and say, this person needs to bow the knee to me. And we make them grovel and suffer and hurt. No. We forgive. Why? Because God has forgiven us in Christ. We need to put on love, to love, to have a loving concern for others for their benefit. That means that the love that we have is selfless and sacrificial. It puts others first, even at the cost of our own personal privileges. That's real love. And the Apostle Paul says, love binds and connects all these things. These compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. Love binds all of that together. Are we more loving today than a year ago? Are we more loving today than five years ago and ten years ago? I hope the answer is yes. And so who is Paul talking to? Paul is not talking to a nebulous group of people, an indiscriminate group of people. He's talking to a discriminate group of people. He's talking to a defined group of people. He's talking to those who are God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. He's talking to Christians. Not scattered, but together, congregated. A church is only a church when they come together. And so this entire passage is addressed to the church, to believers. And the Apostle Paul is saying, God loves you, church. God loves you, dear brother. God loves you, dear sister. God loves you. He gave you his son. Is that not enough? And as God's people, we say, he is enough. That's why the verse says, he is all and in all. He is more than enough. And so if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, are you putting off these sins that God knows about? Are you putting on what God wants you to put on? See, there's a responsibility here. You remember a week ago I said, 
you know, most Christians say, let go and let God, and they just love that mantra, and they sing it in their Christian songs. And they recite it over and over and over again. No. It comes from the pit of hell. You are called to live for Christ, not accidentally, but responsibly, intentionally. God has just said in his word, you are not to do this, but you're to do this. Why? Because of the gospel. God has saved you. You're not called to be legalists. You're called to be Christians. You have a responsibility to do that. And if you're not a Christian, I can't expect you to do any of this. You're still dead in your sins. And because you don't believe John 3.18, you're condemned already. You've heard the gospel. Turn to Christ and be saved. Your only hope is Him. You know, Spurgeon says this, and he makes a very interesting observation about people who believe in so-called Christianity in the Bible. And he says this, quote, I would recommend you either believe God up to the hilt, means perfectly, or the full, or else not believe at all. Believe this book of God, every letter of it, or else reject it. There is no logical standing place between the two. Be satisfied with nothing less than a faith that swims in the deeps of divine revelation. A faith that paddles about the edge of the water is poor faith at best. It is a little better than a dry land faith and is not good for much. That comes from the Prince of Preachers. What is Spurgeon saying? Spurgeon's saying, if you have a real belief in the Word of God, in the Gospel, it should cause you to live in a very real before Him and before others. If we truly understand what God has done for us in Christ, then we will live for Christ. We will be intentional about the things that we have read and talked about today. We want to live lives that are pleasing to Him. We want to be a blessing to our brothers and sisters in Christ, in the church, in the gospel-centered New Testament church. Do we not want to be a blessing? We do. What encourages you more? When you see your brother and sister sin or when they put to death the deeds of the body? They strive to put sin to death and live by faith in the Savior, to live by the Spirit. The answer is we're more encouraged when we see our brother and sister trying to kill sin and live for Christ. So what you believe influences how you live. We need to keep that in mind. Be who you are, God's people. You are saved by God in Christ. Now live for him. Remember what God has done for you. Sermon in a sentence. A healthy and growing Christian within a church context is one who lives by a gospel-centered ethic, not by the traditions of mankind. We live by the gospel, not by man-made religion. And I'm fearful that many of us have succumbed to man-made religion. Live by the gospel. Remember what God has done for you in Christ. And live for him. And if need be, die for him. You belong to Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you.
for all that you've done for us in Christ. You've chosen us before the foundation of the world. You've given us Christ, the one who has lived and died for us. You've given us your spirit. You've given us your word, the Holy Bible. And we thank you, Lord, that our salvation is full and our salvation is complete. And you are worthy of all glory and honor and praise. In your name we pray. Amen.